We've got John 11, 28 through 44. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village, but he was still in a place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to Jesus, to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to the him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his feet and hands bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for um, your promise that when we gather together like this, uh, turning our attention to you, Lord Jesus, you would be with us. Holy Spirit, would you help us this morning? Would you be our teacher? Would you open up the eyes of our hearts uh, to see you, uh, to get to know you even better? so that we wouldn't leave here with just more uh, information about you, but that we would experience more of you as your sons and daughters in Jesus' name, amen. It's good to see you guys. Thanks for being here. Um, Megan, I love how you are excited about everything. It's the best. This passage that uh, we've just looked at, that Brandon has just read for us in the book of John, or the gospel according to John, is um, sort of our next installment of our journey through the book of John, just to say, if, if you're new here this morning and wondering, okay, what, what, what's happening here? What is Grace City up to? We have been working through the gospel according to John, and we've entitled our, our little sermon series, if you will, Walking with Jesus. Um, 
because around the beginning of the year, several of us got together, we spent some time praying, just asking the Lord, like, what's, what do you want to do with your church this year? Um, how can we experience uh, more of you and more of your truth, more of your grace? And the general sense was we needed to slow down um, and walk with Jesus, which is of course metaphorical, um, but not entirely. Um, Jesus, in a very real way, by the Spirit, walks with us. Um, and there's a certain rhythm to walking. Um, it's so easy to get caught up in like the, um, the, the pace of our world around us. What's the world? The, um, yeah, what do you call it? What's that word when everything's just moving too quick and you feel like you're constantly trying to catch up? Um, at some level, it's sort of the nature of city life. Things tend to move quickly. Business moves quickly. Transactions move quickly. Hopefully, your internet service is moving quickly. Ours, not so much. <laughs> um, and we felt like God was saying, slow down and walk with me. Let me teach you um, how to live a sustainable, peace-filled life that's enriched by my presence. Let me lead you. Let me teach you um, what living is really all about. And so we've been walking with Jesus, and that's why we're reading the book of John together. Now, um, this particular portion of text that we've just looked at, it's the second half of a bigger story, the story of Lazarus, who died. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha, um, it seems fairly obvious that, that this family, Lazarus and his sisters, they were close friends with Jesus. Um, we're told that Jesus loved this family. And when he heard that Lazarus was sick, um, he was compelled to, to quickly, not so quickly, but he was compelled to go and, and be with them and ultimately uh, bring Lazarus back to life. So let me just say right up front, like that, that's, a, that's quite a doozy. Um, when it comes to like reading through the scriptures and wrestling with like the supernatural stuff, the healing stuff, some of the stuff is like, wow, okay, that's, that, that's hard to get my modern sort of mind around. Uh, the teachings, the history, yep, that's, that's all fine. But man, the supernatural stuff. Some people are like, yes, more of that. I love it. I have no problem with it. Um, but a lot of us, you're like, mm, that's, that is difficult. That is difficult. Did this man, Lazarus, really come back to life? Did Jesus himself actually come back to life? Uh, personally, I, I'm an absolute believer, and I'll, I'll share a little bit more with you as we go. There's reasons for that. Um, some of those reasons are very, um, I would say, quite logical. If you're a thinker, if you like to apply um, logic and, and, and rational thinking to your world and to how you live, great, that's, that's good. Um, I think there's some very logical, compelling, historic reasons to believe that, yes, as hard as it might be to believe, um, there, there's good reason to believe that Lazarus, in fact, did come back to life and Jesus himself came back to life after three days in the grave, just as he predicted. All that to say 
this particular story that we're looking at this morning is quite, it's, it's unique in more reasons than one, but the book of John itself is quite unique. I mentioned this before, um, but you know there's no parables in this particular gospel account. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four sort of accounts of Jesus, his life, his teachings, the miracles, his crucifixion and resurrection, all recounted by these different individuals as they experience Jesus for themselves. And John, of course, is one of those, and you get a very unique perspective as you read through each one of the gospels, but in this particular gospel, no parables, which is kind of odd, really, because in the other three gospels, the parables are are quite prominent as you read through the teachings of Jesus, and some of them are are absolutely uh, phenomenal. Like the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus constantly telling these stories, these parables, to uh, explain who he is, or more accurately, what God is like and what his kingdom is like as he's come to inaugurate his heavenly kingdom on earth, as it's always has existed in heaven. But in the book of John, no parables. You get Jesus teaching about a variety of things. We're constantly dropping in on conversations, a lot of different uh, interactions that Jesus was having with the people around him, his own disciples, his friends, his opponents. Of course, the miracles. Um, By the way, this is the seventh miracle in the book of John, the seventh and final miracle that we read about in the book of John. This particular miracle, Jesus calling a man who's been dead for four days to come out of the tomb, it's only recorded in the book of John. This is John's way of actually um, telling some of the stories that get told in parable form in the other gospels. This is a bit of an an acted parable. Uh, Now to be sure, Jesus isn't merely trying to show off. This isn't merely Jesus trying to sort of communicate something and somehow like using this tragic situation to to sort of make a spiritual point. It's it's not, it's not just that. In fact, Jesus, we're told, was compelled by his love for Lazarus. This wasn't just him showing off his godness in front of people so that we might be convinced that he is in fact who he claims to be. He loves the man. And so he shows up, he weeps with his sisters, and he confronts death because of his love. And he tells us um, in verse 41, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this, I prayed, publicly, as it were, on account of the people standing by that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus is healing a man whom he loved and doing it in a way to reveal something about himself and his father. And in that sense, I would 
argue that this is a type of enacted parable. He wants to reveal something about himself and his father to those looking on, people like us, reflecting on these things that Jesus has done. Um, I mentioned the parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15. Interestingly, that particular parable, which is one of my favorites, it's a parable about a son who, who's, who takes his inheritance before his dad is even dead, goes off and, and lives this uh, extravagant kind of life. He is like the quote unquote prodigal son, this reckless sort of uh, life. And then he finally comes to his senses after he's wasted it all and decides to come home. Uh, At the end of that parable, towards the end of that parable, uh, when the son finally comes home and realizes that his father is far more extravagant in his love than he was ever sort of recklessly extravagant in his wild living. I mean, God in the story of the prodigal son is truly the prodigal father, the father who is so recklessly extravagant in his love for his lost son. When he sees his son finally comes home, he says, this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. This is a kind of enacted parable about a man who was once, once dead, who Jesus brings back to life. What do we make of it? What do we make of it? <clears throat> well, like the parables themselves, um, some might argue that you must be careful in preaching the parables because pastors tend to take liberties and come up with all sorts of creative sort of like anecdotes and parallels and there's no end to the things you could come up with. Um, Most of the parables usually have one very specific point um, with a few side points because there's always a handful of characters involved. Ultimately, the parables are truly about who God is, what he's like, which is why, again, I would argue that even Uh, The parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15, is really a story about God himself. Extravagant love of the father who sees his son come home with empty hands, crippled by debt. And his father says, my son, my son, you've come home. And it would seem his empty hands aren't a problem. The fact that his son has wasted his inheritance and is now in debt to his father is not a problem. The father says, son, welcome home. He brings him in the house, he restores him, and they celebrate. His son, who was once dead, is now alive again. This enacted parable, if I can put it that way, is also about God. It says something about who God is, what he's like. And so I want to draw out a few, a few things that I think are, are helpful for us. Let's start with the fact that we're told in verse 35 that Jesus wept. Some have said that that's the, um, famously the shortest verse in the Bible, two-word verse. Is that true? 
I've never actually like researched it. I think that's true. The shortest verse in the Bible, just two words, Jesus wept. You know, there's, um, I don't know if you've noticed this in culture, um, but there's this sort of backlash against emotionalism within certain kind of streams of, of church. This, this notion that somehow emotion is problematic in that uh, God wants us to somehow just simply get over our feelings and focus more on just truth. Um, because if we, if we lean too much on our feelings, somehow we're gonna, we're gonna end up getting confused or we're gonna build identities around like our feelings and end up in all sorts of, God only knows where that's gonna lead us. And so a lot of people will push back hard and be like, oh, it's not about your feelings. We, we need to talk about feelings are bad. Feelings are problematic. We need to like somehow resist our feelings, suppress our feelings, don't talk about our feelings, or simply confess our feelings. But feelings are bad. And yet here we see God in Christ feeling, weeping, and confronted with death. God is a God who weeps when we weep. He mourns when we mourn. He feels deeply. That's important. It doesn't mean that uh, we should sort of swing back the other way and make everything all about our feelings and just ask God or expect God to merely affirm my feelings all the time, no matter what they are. Sometimes, like, my feelings can be uh, incredibly problematic. And I have to go to God's word and be like, okay, God, this is how I feel, but what do you say? Like, how do you feel? How do you feel? Would you help me to feel what you feel about me? Because some days, I feel awful things about me. I feel deep, deep shame about me. I feel rejected about me. Or I feel full of pride. I feel all sorts of big feelings, as my daughter says. Grown-ups feel big feelings. My 11-year-old always, my 11-year-old reminds me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really big feelings. And I bring my feelings to Jesus, and I say, Jesus, how do you feel? And sometimes my Lord weeps with me. So I want to affirm you in your feelings and invite you to bring your emotions to Jesus. Weep with our king. Weep with our king. But Jesus doesn't merely affirm their pain. He actually wades through it with them and leads them beyond it. Jesus defeats death, like actual death. Now in a second we'll talk about metaphorical death or spiritual death. But in this story, let's not sort of skip over the obvious point. The man died four days buried in some cave. And Jesus says, roll away the stone. You're about to see my power over death. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it says, through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, that he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus defeats death. 
Again, elsewhere in the New Testament, death is actually referred to as the final enemy of God. And Jesus comes ultimately through his death on the cross. By the way, this death and resurrection of Lazarus is sort of like a, uh, it's a precursor. It's the prequel to like the main event. It's the, the trailer for the actual feature film. That is, of course, Jesus' resurrection. But we're getting a glimpse. He's giving us a little foretaste of the real battle that's about to come. By the way, you know, this is only a few days away from Jesus' crucifixion. It's weird because we're only in chapter 11 and there's 21 chapters in John, but this is like about nine days away from the night of his crucifixion or something like the six days away from Good Friday and then three days after that, he himself will come back to life. Now you can... You can do the math for yourself. John's, John's a weird writer. He is not at all concerned with chronology. You know that. As, as you're reading through John, he's, he's jumping all over the place. So if you're thinking that somehow this is like a chronological sort of retelling, it's not. It's actually kind of helpful to know. But it's only a few days away from his own death and resurrection. Jesus defeats death. There's at least two things that this does for us. Number one, gives us hope. The fact that God doesn't just empathize with my pain, but actually leads me through it, out onto the other side, where death is defeated, means that I've got like real hope, like substantial hope, rooted, grounded, historical hope, not just in an idea, but like in the fact that Jesus conquers death, means that in this life, no matter what happens, even if the worst should happen, i.e. the death of a loved one, the death of my child, the death of a parent, or a sibling, or a pet. Even if the worst should happen, I know that in Christ, death has been defeated. I have hope, I have hope. I also have peace. That's the second thing, peace. Um, let me read this to you out of Romans. Romans chapter 12 says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Because death doesn't have the final word, I know that even if my enemy gets through this life seemingly unscathed, never, never actually receiving the justice due because of their sin against me or society 
or the people I love, I know that God has the final word. Even post-mortem, after death, there will come a day when everyone is brought back to life and God will judge the world, which frees me to be a peacemaker. Justice is a big deal, is it not? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. I believe that justice needs to be done in our world. Whose job is it to see that justice is done? Is it my role to take vengeance on those who have done wrong? Nope, it's not. Oh, this is a hard teaching. This is a hard, hard teaching. When someone sins against me, when someone curses me, when someone abuses me, when someone steals from me, my job is to bless them, is to feed them, is to give them something to drink. If they steal my clothes, give them everything they need. Oh, this is like, this is, this is radical. This is radical. Could you imagine if all of the Christians in the world, like including us in this room, including myself here, standing on this little stage, if we actually started to live this way? Oh my gosh. But what about justice? Who's gonna make sure that justice is done? Who's gonna make sure that the evil people are punished? God. God. Even if they make it through this entire life, healthy, wealthy, seemingly blessed in all ways, God is the judge. And because he's defeated death, I don't have to worry about making sure that justice is exacted and done upon my enemies. Oh, and thank God, he is so patient. Because every once in a while I do have this thought, ooh, gosh, who have I wronged lately? God is so unfathomably patient. He doesn't want any one of us to perish. He wants to give everyone a chance. Even if it means an entire lifetime of chances to come to our senses, to come home and say, Father, I'm empty-handed. I've got nothing, I'm broken, I've squandered everything you've given me. Is there room for me in your house? And our Father would say, get in here crazy kid I've got nothing but love for you oh and we'll, we'll deal with the, the consequences of your sin oh for sure yeah that's, that's, that's a mess that's a big old mess but we're going to do it as family get inside we're going to celebrate first hope and peace So much more could be said. About 2,000 years worth of things could be said about the ramifications of Jesus' defeat of death. But let's, let's talk about the more, um, what, what about like the, the spiritual death in our world? What about like the dying things in our world? What about, let's say, a bit more abstract, but what about the relationships that are dying around us? What about things that we wouldn't necessarily like put in a tomb 
because like they don't have a pulse anymore, but the sort of the, the death that we see happening in, a, in a, a, a variety of ways all around us, all the time. What about the death that I feel inside at times? What about the, the deep desire, the insatiable desire that at times I have to die? Like what about that kind of death in our world? Does Jesus defeat that death? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I would say that's like, that's, that's a massive part of what it means to walk with Jesus. Everywhere we go, he begins to sort of breathe on dead things. And we begin to see glimpses of new life coming out of places and situations and relationships and, and like the stuff of life. Everywhere where death once reigned and things were decaying, Jesus begins to say, come out, come out. New life, new life, new life, new life. We experience what some theologians refer to as like the inaugurated age of new life. It's not fully here, but it's beginning to break out. And we get foretastes of it. Everywhere we look as we follow Jesus, as we walk with the one who conquers death. Let me read to you out of Ephesians. Oh, I, I could pick a hundred different passages out of the New Testament. I love this one. Ephesians chapter two, verses four through seven. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Wherever the spirit of the Lord leads us, the spirit of the Lord leads us, new life begins to arise out of dead places. 2 Corinthians chapter two, it says, in Christ, we are led in triumphal procession and through us, the Holy Spirit spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him and new life in every place. Amen. Amen. Um, how? So, I love thinking about this stuff. I mean, I, if I was sitting where you're sitting, I'd be like, hallelujah, amen, let's sing songs now. Let's think, this is, this is it. This, this is a life-changing truth. You begin to think, man, what? So Jesus conquered death. Like, this is not just an abstraction. This is not just something that happened once upon a time. Like, this is, this is altered, like, the very fabric of reality because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, like the kingdom of God is now like overcoming death. We're seeing new life like spring up from hard places in the ground and stones are being rolled away and dead people are coming back to life. Augustine famously said if Jesus hadn't been very specific to say Lazarus, come out, like every person who'd ever died pre-Jesus would have come out of the grave because he is the God who has overcome even death itself. So, but what, are, what how? How, that's, that's my point, super exciting stuff, amen. 
hallelujah, and all the rest. But like, how? What's dead in your life right now? What stinks? Well, um, it's a parable. It's, it's an enacted parable. We've got Mary, we've got Martha, we've got Lazarus. Um, we've got the, the Jews, not in like an anti-Semitic way, but like the Jews who are like constantly watching Jesus, kind of like sizing him up, critiquing him, trying to catch him in some sort of contradiction. And, and so all of these people are looking on. So what, what of the story? I would, a couple things. Jesus tells Martha, roll away the stone. What does she say? Well, Jesus, it's gonna smell bad. Four days, dead. Putrefaction definitely would have set in. She's, she's a little nervous, it might be awkward. Um, are you sure you wanna do that? Are you sure you wanna roll away the stone? She had just had this interaction with Jesus only moments ago. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though they die, will live again. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, I believe. Awesome. Let's roll away the stone. Well, are you sure? That could be awkward. Is this not, like, who, who can't relate to this? It's like, um... Some of you are like, I don't understand what you're saying. Okay, so uh, John chapter five, one of my favorite sermons yet of this series, been preached on the, the man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda. He, he was crippled, I got it right that time, he was crippled for 38 years. He couldn't walk. And Jesus sees him on his little mat next to the pool there, and he asks him, do you want to be healed? And what does he say? He said, well, I, yeah, but, yeah, but, do you really want to roll away that stone? It'd be embarrassing. What if it doesn't work? What about the smell? I mean, who wants to be like, (laughs) so this is the only antidote that comes to mind. It's like, Anecdote, not antidote. Um, it's like passing gas in public. It's like, it's like the most embarrassing thing ever. Like, you don't want to be that person. You certainly don't want to be the one that's drawing attention to yourself. Like, it's, it's kind of like that. It's like, yeah, I want to be healed. Yes, I want to experience this resurrection life. But like, I don't know if I, if I want to deal with like the, uh, the embarrassment of the situation, the stench, the smell. You know, in, in life, this is just, I'm no psychologist, I'm not pretending, but this is like basic, basic human psychology. When you've experienced real trauma in life, it's quite natural to form an attachment to that trauma. The emotions that come along with that can become so powerful that you can actually begin to build a kind of identity around those emotions. And the thought of getting healed can actually be rather terrifying You want to be healed, but you've become so connected to those feelings 
that when it comes right down to it, the thought can be rather terrifying. Do you really want to be healed? Do you really want to roll away that stone? Are you really ready to deal with what might be behind that rock? What about the smell? How do we experience resurrection life? It takes courage. It takes courage. Jesus gives us grace to be brave, but he still offers us the choice. He could have just said the word and have like angels roll away the stone. That's what he did when he came back to life, but in this situation, he turns to Martha and he says, roll away the stone. And she has to make a choice. He's so patient. He's so patient. What about the smell? There are things in our lives that we've become so um, accustomed to that even though we want to be healed, when it comes right down to it, it can be rather terrifying to deal with what might actually be behind that rock. It takes courage. Jesus leads us uh, to the dead places in our world. I love in uh, Mark chapter five, just as a bit of a parallel, uh, Jesus crosses over a sea with some of his disciples for no apparent reason, um, other than when they get to the other side, there's a man living there who's um, possessed by like a thousand demons. And he had been living among the tombs. And we're told that no one could contain him. He'd become so demonized that not even chains could bind him. (laughs) The irony, here's a man who'd become so powerful that no one could bind him and yet the chains in his own soul were unbreakable. He'd built his own tomb. A man who was living among the dead and Jesus tells his disciples to get in the boat. We're gonna go to the tombs. We're gonna meet the man who'd become so powerful that no human chains could hold him and yet he was existing among the dead. Jesus leads us to those places. I know we all want to be comfortable. We all want to sort of create a life where we're able to um, manage the difficult things, the hard things, the things that would cause us to uh, sacrifice for others. I get it. I'm I'm just like the rest of y'all. I want to be comfortable. And yet the more that I look to Jesus and I say, Jesus, lead the way, be my leader, be my king, direct my path. Jesus keeps leading me to like really difficult places. He leads me to the other side where I find myself now standing among the dead. And Jesus welcomes me into the process of breathing new life, being the the sweet aroma, that fragrant aroma of new life where there was once dead places. And that's what we're doing here, at least in part, as a church. Why plant a church in Portland? Why plant a church anywhere? 
well, let's just get all the Christians together so we can shut the world out and just do like our, our religious thing, right? Sing our songs and, and be comfortable knowing that we're going to heaven. And no, obviously not. Jesus leads us into the hard, difficult places. Let's go to the other side. There's a man who's been living among the dead for nearly his whole life. Come with me. We're gonna break chains today. This is what we're doing in Portland. We go to the hard places. We go to the dead places. And we need courage to roll, the way, to roll away the stones. And we need help to remove the burial cloths. Preachers love to preach on this one. So I'll just make it really short. Lazarus comes out, but of course he's all wrapped up. He's bound by the burial clothes that he was laid in. And Jesus says, quick, unbind the man. It's kind of a funny thing to think about. How, how was he like shuffling out of the tomb? Probably couldn't see what was going on. Poor guy must have been like freaking out. And he probably did smell. I mean, 40, he'd been sick for a while, probably hadn't bathed. They laid him in a tomb. The dude was probably stank. And he comes out, he's all messed up, all disoriented. Quick, remove his burial clothes. Unbind the man. So there would have to, had to have been his disciples, maybe Mary and Martha, those, those standing by to, to, to come and help the man. And that's also what we're doing as a church. When someone begins to experience new life, it's not something you ever sort of just do off by yourself on the side. We, we begin to, to heal in community together. And oh my gosh, let me tell you, there's nothing messier than a brand new person stumbling into new life. And they're a wreck. They can hardly walk. It's like uh, the, the other metaphor we find in scripture is like, um, it's like spiritual infant, infancy. Anyone ever changed a diaper lately? Maybe? Yeah. Good times, huh? <laughs> you guys familiar with a blowout? <laughs> Hang around the church for like more than a year. Okay. You'll know what I'm talking about. A spiritual blowout. It's just a mess. A wise pastor once told me, uh, my very first church that I was a part of, it, it fell apart because one of the pastors uh, had an affair with the daughter of one of the other pastors. Terrible, talk about a spiritual blowout. I mean, just, it destroyed me. Absolutely destroyed me. And one of the, the other leaders there, he told me when every, everyone was freaking out, everyone, some people were just like running, other people were, it was just absolute carnage, spiritual carnage. And one of the pastors, he said, Simon, there's, there's three, three type of people um, that you're gonna find in, in a situation like this. Um, when all of the feces interfaces with the fan, there's three types of people. One, there's the person who looks at it and sort of shakes their head and says, who's gonna clean this up? Who did this and who's gonna clean it up? I'm, I didn't do it, so I'm, I'm gonna be over here. In fact, I'll, I'll just go someplace else where like, I don't have to deal with this. So that's, that's a normal response. Um, then there's the person who, like the monkey at the zoo, likes to pick it up and just start flinging it. And that's what kids do. They get their hand in it and they just start like throwing it around. And they're not really disengaged, but they're certainly not helping either. They're just, just flinging it everywhere. And then there's those who say, well, 
yeah, I remember, I remember being that guy. And I remember what Jesus did for me. He didn't just look at me and said, clean yourself up, nor did he pick it up and start rubbing it in my face. He came down and began to clean me up, clean me up. And that's what we do for each other. We come out of that tomb, oh my gosh, it's, it's a mess. It's dirty, we're confused. We've got all sorts of weird beliefs about the church and theology. We're just, we're just, we're just happy to be alive. We're just happy that God didn't forget about me in my dead place. And Jesus says, come on, get your shovel. Get the disinfectant. Get my word. Be filled with the spirit. And let's clean this kid up. Let's bear with him. Let's help him. Let's walk with him. And when they have another blowout, we're going we're gonna to clean them up again. And if it takes years, maybe even decades, we're going to keep bearing with one another, with patience and humility, helping each other to come out of those dead places and begin to walk and experience freedom and, and, and remind each other that this is a very long, difficult, complicated process and we need help. I cannot take my own grave clothes off. I need brothers and sisters to come around me and say, let me help you. Good on you for rolling away the stone. Man, you smell. It's okay. So did I. So do I, occasionally. Let's clean you up. Let's clean you up. No, 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 no. Don't run. Don't run. Get, come back, come back, come back, come back. I know you stink. It's okay. We've all been there. I know it's embarrassing. We've all been there. Let's clean you up. Last point. Kind of already made the point. New life happens in the context of friendship. This is what the chalkboard's for. I was gonna do this last week, but I ran out of time. So our mission statement or our vision statement as a church, if you go on the website, you'll see it says this. We exist so that anyone might experience truth, grace, and new life. This is what we've been talking about. In Jesus Christ. And each one of those words are like a, like a handle that a whole lot of other things kind of hang on. We exist that anyone might experience truth, grace, and new life in Jesus Christ. God's word is the truth. Jesus himself is the truth. And God doesn't just give us commandments to try to ascend to or obey in our own strength. He gives us grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. And where our sin abounds, his grace abounds all the more. And ultimately, he doesn't just affirm us in truth and grace, but he invites us, he leads us. He calls us out of the dead places that we might begin to actually experience transformation. That new life wouldn't just be a concept or a strap line, but it would become a reality as we experience him in these things. Oh, and it's for anyone, anyone. So if you ever walk into a place like this and you look around and you're like, oh, I don't know if I, if I really belong here, anyone. And if there's a hurdle someplace that's just sort of like grown up, unbeknownst to the leadership team, please, I'm begging you, tell someone about it. Hey, you know you've got this like hurdle 
like right at the front door, cool, let's burn the thing down. Let's rip it into a million pieces because the grace of God is for anyone. There's one thing missing here, and it's a big one. None of this happens by listening to a podcast online. None of this happens, just you and Jesus, floating head Jesus, you and your Bible, without any body, without any hands or feet to come around you. All of this must happen. In the context of friendship. Friendship. That's why being a part of the church is, it, I know it's, it's not the most fashionable thing these days. It's not, the, it's not the most popular or convenient thing. But when we come together like this, or in our homes throughout the week, or for pizza at the Nutters after church, or for film club on Thursday, or whatever it is, all these different things, the official things, the unofficial things, when we're coming together, committing to one another in friendship, it's in the context of those moments, these moments, where we're actually interacting with each other, getting up and smelling each other. Like right now, my, my mouth is so dry, my breath probably stinks which is always awkward for a pastor. I want to pray for y'all. I'm like, dude, someone give me some gum quick. I'm like, you know what? Deal with it. I'm human just like you. Your breath stinks as well. And and that sounds silly, right? But you can't smell each other's breath if we're like, if we're keeping each other at a distance, if we're only popping in and out or if we're just doing the online thing. And forgive me, if you're joining us online right now, Awesome, praise God for technology. There's a reason why we're trying to like upgrade our, our, our live stream ministry. But ultimately, as we walk with Jesus, the new life that he invites us to experience, it's done in friendship with him and each other. It's like being a body together. We get connected and if the little toe begins to think like, ah, you don't really need me, false, false. We need you perhaps more than any other part of the body. We need each other. This is how we experience new life. It's in the context of friendship. That's it. Can I invite the worship team to come up, please? Thank you, guys. So here's, um, here's an application for us as we prepare to take communion. Think about the people that um, you're, you're walking with. I want all of us to experience like the life that Jesus gave his life for. He laid down his life 
that we might experience new life because of what he's done for us. Like, I want that. I want that for, for everyone because it's just that good. And I know when I say something like that, part of me kind of feels like, oh, am I, am I just trying to like get people to like come to Grace City so that we can kind of build up our attendance so we can kind of fill out the pews a little bit more and that sort of cynical like I get that but please can we get past that and just simply embrace the fact that like no this this whole thing comes back to relationship friendship with Jesus and each other and whether you find that here in this little community that I absolutely love and am so grateful to be a part of or someplace else because there's some fantastic church communities in our city some some maybe best in the world I don't know best that I've ever sort of come in contact with wherever that might be for you my encouragement is like find your people Oh, and then once you find them, uh, be prepared for the awful shock that you're not going to like love your people. <laughs> be like, ah, dang it. They were cool for about six months, and then Simon's preaching got old, and then those people started, and then, then the bad breath actually became intolerable, and then, you know, all of the things, and then I'm like, okay, great, now give it another six months, and then another six months, and keep building, keep, keep showing up, keep sticking around, keep bearing with And let's meet Jesus in, in, in those places, in those friendships. The most transformation that you'll ever experience as a follower of Jesus will happen in the context of your friendships. Maybe not the ones that you like envisioned, but like the ones that God has invited you into. For me, that looks like showing up here every Sunday, around between 8.30 and 9, showing up here again at 7 o'clock to meet with my men's group where we, all, where we all confess our sin and encourage each other and remind each other of who we are in Jesus. Um, that happens for me every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. when a few of us huddle around that little corner and pray for each other and for our church and for the world. It happens for me every Thursday morning. At, I'm just telling you like my weekly schedule. Every Thursday morning at 6 a.m. as I meet with some guys here, uh, we talk about our marriages and like we encourage each other uh, to like be, become husbands like Jesus. And most of these guys, I'm like, ah, I don't know if I would have like handpicked you as far as friends go, but I know, I know some of you I would have, some of you maybe not, I don't know. But I know for sure that every time I show up, I just keep showing up, keep showing up, keep showing up, keep showing up. Lo and behold, over time, I'm like, you know, I think today might be the day that I roll away the stone. I think I'm ready. Oh, I'm terrified of like, you all are gonna look at me and cringe when I tell you about this dead thing in the closet. But you know what? You guys know me. I've been showing up. Let's roll it away. And I know that as I stumble out 
and probably freak out and try to make a run for it because all of a sudden I feel exposed. I have people be like, no, no, get back, come on, let's clean, let's clean you up, get the grave clothes off, woo, that's a blowout, that is a blowout. Let's clean you up. And I keep showing up and I keep showing up and I keep showing up. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, Jesus is in the friendships. There is hope. Jesus is in the friendships. That's what we're doing here, guys. And as we invite the world into our little church family, you know, like evangelism and stuff, we're inviting people like, hey, let me introduce you to my best friend. Let me introduce you to my friends that we might follow Jesus together. That's, that's what we're doing. That's the vision. Come into friendship. Can we stand together, please? We receive the bread, we dip it in the juice. We're receiving Jesus' death for us. And that makes everything that we've been talking about more than just a good idea something that Jesus has done he's made possible through his work on the cross it's very important otherwise these are all just ideas just ideas a bit of advice but because of his blood spilt and his body laid down God begins to dwell with us in our friendships in our lives in our hearts experience the reality of his victory over death. So if you'd like to receive that uh, personally this morning, I would invite you to um, receive communion. There's gluten-free on this side, and then we will worship in song whenever you're ready.